Good morning, College Park. The scripture reading for this morning is found in Romans 14, verses 1 through 12. Romans 14, verses 1 through 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despises, despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jody, and good morning. Hope you're having a great weekend and uh, enjoy the uh, day tomorrow. Extra time to spend in, with the Lord in the Word, to pray, do some reading. Summer's over. <laughs> going to be in Romans 14 this morning, but before we get into that passage, uh, two things for you to be aware of. Next week is the official public launch of our Fishers Campus. Uh, we already have 450 people who are there and uh, haven't even opened the doors really to the broader public, so praise the Lord for that, yeah. So if you uh, work with someone in the Fishers area, send them that direction, and uh, they're probably gonna have to go to two services here very quickly. They're running out of space. It's really been 
thrilling to see. And then on uh, September the 27th, last Sunday of the month, we're gonna celebrate uh, the 30th anniversary of this church. I don't know if you know it or not, but this year marks 30 years that uh, God's been faithful to this uh, assembly. Uh, We're calling that uh, celebration um, something about God's amazing grace. We're uh, gonna use a song written by Phil Wickham for our title called This Is Amazing Grace, and we're also gonna have the artist Phil Wickham here on Sunday to uh, lead us in worship. We sing a number of his songs, and it's gonna be a great Sunday morning uh, together, along with a great um, celebration of what's gonna happen. We're gonna have a uh, church history video, kind of recounting God's faithfulness over uh, the life of this ministry. I know on the scale of human history, 30 years isn't that long, um, and yet, for those who've been around here for a while, we'll know God's been very faithful to us over 30 years. It's good to mark these moments and uh, say thank you to God for them. There'll be some food, some fellowship time. Uh, well, also, when you come in on that Sunday, everyone will have a name tag on Sunday that um, will not only say your name, uh, but also how many years you've been here at College Park Church. It'll be fun to see uh, how God's brought us all here together. And the other great thing is that everything that's gonna happen next Sunday or on the 27th has been funded outside of the church budget. And that's so that at the end of the service, we're gonna take an offering. Some folks have stepped forward to fund that weekend in order to encourage you that like in the Old Testament when they had a celebration, rather than receiving gifts, they gave gifts. And so what we want you to do is come and we're gonna take an offering to bless some churches in the central city, some church plants and things of that sort in the city, and on this 30th anniversary to say, God, you've been faithful to us, we wanna be a conduit to bless some other churches uh, in the city. So uh, think about that, be here the 27th, and we're gonna have a great time celebrating God's faithfulness to us. He has been so kind. This really is a story of God's amazing grace. Let's pray, Romans 14. Father, help us now to understand the beauty of this passage, how it relates to our daily lives and how it relates to this church. Um, Give us ears to hear, give us open hearts to receive it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's been over two months since we've been in the book of Romans and I wanna reset and remind you what this book is all about. There's one word that really summarizes the book of Romans. Hopefully you'll remember it, although I won't test you on it. It's the word righteousness. The book of Romans is about a righteousness that God demands, a righteousness that we could never fulfill in and of ourselves. The book of Romans is about a righteousness that comes through Christ and a righteousness that's received by faith and God gives to those who put their trust in Jesus. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you become a Christian, by no longer looking to yourself for your own righteousness, but instead looking to Christ and saying, I'm a sinner and I need that righteousness given to me and by faith believing in Jesus' finished work. That's what Romans is all about. That's what the gospel's all about. When last we were in Romans, we were in Romans chapter 12 and Romans 13. We learned that in order to be a living sacrifice, there are some things that need to frame a Christian mindset some statements that we need to make about ourselves, and they were, I'm yours, Lord, change me and lead me. That becomes the Christian mindset, and then that mindset translates into how we treat one another. So in Romans 13, for instance, Paul says this, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So Paul's aim is to take us from justification by faith or a righteousness that God gives help us to understand how we are to see ourselves and then 
through the gospel lens and how we are to treat one another, how we are to treat people. So Paul moves from righteousness by faith to then righteousness through love. We come to Romans 14, 15 today, and in this particular section of scripture, Paul is leaning into what gospel-centered harmony looks like. His aim is to help us live in this gospel-centered harmony. He's writing to a church about how they should get along, and so we need to receive this word from the Bible as God's word to us here at College Park Church about how we are to get along. Paul recognized that the church in Rome, not unlike ours, had people from all different walks of life, different backgrounds, different ideas, different religious heritages, different baggage, And we're all together, and the question then, how does this body of Christ work? Especially when there are disagreements within that body, meaning that somebody does something and you don't do the same thing. How do you interact with one another? And Paul's aim is to help that church and help our church know how do we welcome one another, how do we love one another. In fact, his target in this text is to get us to Romans 15, five to seven. Here's what it says. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The vision is that a people who have been graced by God's kindness would in turn show that grace to one another, especially as it relates to areas of disagreement. One of our core values is the value of extravagant grace. You go out in the atrium today, turn around and look back this way up on the wall, you'll see our core values, one of them extravagant grace, which means that we want the flavor and the tone and the culture of our church to not only be marked by a convictional commitment to the gospel, but we also want to be marked by a convictional commitment to love one another and to be gracious to one another. Then the way in which we treat one another, that people would see something different that's marked by the gospel. And when this works, the church becomes an amazing place. The church literally becomes a vivid display of what the gospel can do, or a little taste of what heaven is going to be like. So, to help us, Paul, raises three themes in Romans 14 and 15. Let me give you just a brief overview. First, he raises the issue that differences do not need to create divisions. And then secondly, we'll look at this next week, differences can be worked out by loving one another. And then finally, that Christ-likeness really creates unity in the midst of diversity. Or to put it another way, what Paul's gonna say today is this, freedom, your freedom in Christ is really important. And the freedom that you have and the freedom that I have needs to be honored as we live with one another. And then next week we're gonna see that while freedom is important, we need to also realize that freedom is an ultimate, that there are boundaries to our freedoms. There's limitations to our freedoms. And then finally, in the third week in this text, we'll see that freedom gives us the opportunity to be unified together. So these two chapters are really important because within our church, we have a variety of views on a number of subjects. With the help of some of uh, folks, I meet with about five or six guys on Tuesday to talk about the sermon and think about angles for application. With their help, we developed a list of things on which people at College Park Church disagree. Here's our incomplete list. 
politics, dating, education choices, alcohol use, worship styles, clothing choices, smoking, movies, dancing, tattoos, divorce and remarriage, moms working outside of the home, gambling, fertility, contraception. Whew, right? That's quite a list, isn't it? Wouldn't you like to hear a sermon on some of those? I'd like to hear a sermon on some of those. I mean, that's, and yet, let's be honest. I mean, that's the stuff that creates friction between us. Those, those are some of the, and there's others, many other issues. What's interesting to me is that this list and these things are far more likely to create division within our own church. As a pastor, I spend far more time trying to help people get along, not over the deity of Christ. People are like, oh, we used to hang out with them, but they don't believe in Jesus. They're not sure about the lordship of Christ thing. That, that's a whole different problem. More often than that, we have families who have different value sets than other families, and there's this low-grade tension between them or parents and children or trying to figure out how do we navigate through the cultural swamp that we live in and how come one family does one thing and another does another? How come one single adult has this conviction but another single adult has this conviction? And what's interesting is I would suggest to you that there is far more sin created in how we discuss and handle these issues than other things that are far more perhaps clear or convictional. Meaning, both privately and publicly, my guess is you've gotta guard what you think and guard what you talk about when you hear that so-and-so does such and such. And so I think these chapters could be very helpful. Now there are principles that we're going to run into in these chapters that will help you navigate some of these challenging scenarios. As long as the church is filled with people and as long as a church comes, has people who come to it from different backgrounds and those different backgrounds at College Park are getting wider and wider and wider. We no longer have a sort of a homogeneous group of people who all kind of have the same story. We have a wide variety of people who come from all kinds of walks from, of life and that's beautiful, it's also hard. And yet the gathering of God's people in Paul's vision here is that with one voice, they might glorify God, they might worship him with one voice, and I'll tell you, that vision is worth leaning into. Gospel-centered harmony, while challenging and messy, is worth it. If God has welcomed us, if Christ has opened his arms to us, then we ought to open our arms to one another. So, let's see what we learn about freedom and how to think about these issues. First, Notice there's a principle here. The principle very simply is this. Welcome one another despite your disagreements. The central word that Paul emphasizes as he begins chapter 14 is the word welcome. Look at chapter 14, verse one. For as, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And then, I already read it, but look at chapter 15 and verse seven. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So that word welcome is 
very prominent. What does it mean? To welcome someone in this context is more than just friendliness. It's more than just, how you doing today? Good, glad to see you. It's more than just social sensibilities. It's more than just toleration. The word welcome denotes a person has been welcomed into one's fellowship or welcomed into one's heart. It implies that there's a warmth, that there's a heartfelt love, that there's something beyond just who this person is and what they do that has bound you together. Interestingly, it's the same word that Jesus uses in John 14, verse three, when he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Here's what he says, I will take you to myself. So think of that, I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So the word welcome means something special. Perhaps as close as I could get to it would be this. When you have a family member or a really close friend who you've done a lot of life with, you don't even see their idiosyncrasies anymore. Or maybe you see them, but they're eclipsed by your love for them that's more foundational. So that someone else may meet your friend and they may say, have you ever noticed that, have you ever noticed that? And you don't even notice it anymore. In fact, you actually love that about them it might annoy somebody else, but you love that because there's so much more to them than just those idiosyncrasies. And the reason that is is because there's something underneath that relationship. This afternoon, my family's gonna drive over to Ohio where our twins are in school. We're gonna go visit them, take them out to dinner. And one of the joys of just being able to be with them after being gone for a couple weeks, having launched them to college, will be we'll sit around a dinner table and they can just be themselves. We, we love them just the way that they are. In the midst of all the turmoil related to starting new at a college campus, and you remember that feeling if you went to college, you're kind of walking around, you feel like a big junior hire again. You remember that feeling? It's like, I, you know, I just remember that. Well, something great about being together with your family who just, they love you regardless of where you've come from. They know your story and it's just, a beautiful thing that you get to be loved just the way that you are. Well, what's underneath that relationship is family. And when it comes to the church, you know what's underneath our relationship with one another? What's underneath our relationship is the gospel. It means that we have given our lives to Christ and that there is this common love, this common joy, this, this common grace that we have received. And because of that, we see one another not just in all of our differences, but we see one another in the midst of our differences with the foundation of the gospel underneath. Instead, what can often happen is that a lack of love and a lack of remembering the centrality of the gospel can cause people to no longer welcome one another. And listen, when that happens, the gospel suffers. So what you need to know is that these chapters are more than just about how to help people get along. What these chapters are about is about the beauty and the credibility of the gospel, about what grounds us in our relationships, what unites us in the midst of our disagreements, and how to help us keep the main thing the main thing when we have differences of opinions. So keep that in mind, won't you, the next time there's a conflict between you and another believer? Keep that in mind the next time you hear about somebody doing something or not doing something and you're tempted in your heart to kind of go, hmm. I don't know about that. Or, well, it's kind of old-fashioned. 
Keep in mind the centrality of the gospel. When you're tempted to say things that sound disparaging or things that sound judgmental, remember that what's really on the line here is, does the gospel really work or does it not? Because if the gospel works and people get along with one another, even though they have differences, the beautiful thing is that then the church becomes a little microcosm of what the gospel can be and do, and it becomes a little taste of what heaven is going to be like, and it becomes a beautiful platform to say to the world, this is what Jesus does. He helps people who have differences to actually love one another. Now Paul identifies the problem. What's the problem? If the principle is welcome one another, some things get in the way. And the problem is, is that so often we end up sinfully responding to one another. And in particular, we, according to this text, Paul wants to zero in on sinfully responding to weak brothers and opinions. So there's a couple things we need to wrestle with. What does it mean to be weak? What what are these opinions? And what are the sinful responses? So first of all, what does it mean to be weak in faith? Verse one says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. So what does that mean? Now, answering that question is really important because Paul will commend next week some pretty radical behaviors and some radical solutions towards this weaker brother. And without understanding what or who the weaker brother really is, you could end up then using the stumbling block argument for things that Paul never intended for it to be used for. You could use this, I won't do that because it might cause a stumbling block. We can cause a stumbling block over anything. So when is the stumbling block a legitimate argument and when is it illegitimate? As well, I've heard it happen before where people call someone a weaker brother and they're really not weaker, they're just more conservative. I mean, it feels really good if if you have a little more freedom in your life. I'm the stronger brother because I've got all this freedom and these conservative people, they're the weaker ones. I'm strong and they're the weak and that feels really good. But you're probably not right. So what do we do with that? What does it mean to be weak in faith? Let me give you some thoughts. According to verses two and five, the issue in this text related to food and festivals. The issue surfaced related to dietary restrictions and the observance of particular days. Look at verse two. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Verse five. One person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. So what had happened, apparently, is that some people in the church had chosen not to eat meat, and verse five also tells us, or verse six, rather, that some had also chosen not to drink wine, while others within the church had no problem eating meat, and some had no problem drinking wine. So then Paul calls the non-meat eaters and the non-wine drinkers the weak, and he calls those who have no issue with meat and no issue with wine the strong. And then the scenario that we're dealing with falls under a banner or a rubric of opinions. He classified these issues as opinions, but notice verse six. Even though they're opinions, both groups honor the Lord. So verse six, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So What we have here is that we have an issue of an opinion, and yet Paul says that both motives of both people, even though they look at the issue very differently and come at it from very different angles, they're both right. 
Given Paul's tone with what he's doing here, we need to scratch one thing off the list. I don't think he's talking about legalism in the way that it appears in the book of Galatians, where in that case, they took the issue of circumcision and they basically said, in order to become a Christian, you have to be circumcised. When that happened in Galatians, Paul is angry. His tone is sharp. He goes after it like it's an offense to the gospel. That's not what's happening here. So whatever's going on is not the same thing as the book of Galatians. It's not like someone saying, you, you have to be a Christian, in order, you need to do this in order to be a Christian. As well, the issue that's raised in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 is similar but not exactly the same. In 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, the problem in that church was the issue of meat that had been offered to pagan idols. And the question was, do you eat meat that's been offered to a foreign god? And for that matter, do you even go to the temple that apparently had restaurants? And do you eat at a restaurant that's connected with a foreign, a foreign god? And what Paul does, interestingly enough, is he uses the similar kind of principles that we see in Romans 14 and 15, and he applies it in that situation, but that's not the same thing that's going on here in Romans 14. So it's not what's going on in Galatians. It's not what's going on in Romans or 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10. So what is happening? Here's what I think is going on. It seems to me that the weaker brother was a Jewish Christian. So he was a Jew, he became a Christian, and he is choosing to avoid certain foods and observe certain holidays out of some sense of loyalty or tradition or heritage to the Mosaic law. In other words, all his life he's been raised with these traditions. All his life he's been told what he should eat or what he shouldn't eat. And in some cases as well, he even developed additional standards in his life to help him keep the Mosaic law, and then he becomes a Christian. And suddenly now, those who are Christians have been told in the New Testament that they can eat whatever they want, and he's struggling with that. In fact, for him, he's not comfortable with that because of all of his background and his upbringing. He, he seems to feel as though righteousness for him is still connected to the clean or unclean food. And so the weaker brother is having a hard time thinking about obedience through this gospel lens. And it's emotional of an issue enough for him that he's actually grieved or could be destroyed over these issues, something that we'll look at next week. So what's happening here is the weak brother is placing too much emphasis on the food and the festivals. And what Paul does very compassionately to this weaker brother is in effect, he says, brother, it's just food. It's just food. He wants the younger, he wants the weaker brother to understand and to grow in helping him to see that, look, there's another issue that's in play here. And at the same time, what he does is he cautions the strong about being inconsiderate of the weaker brother and in the same way that he says to the weaker brother, it's just food. He also says to the stronger brother, it's just food. And we'll see next week the implication of that. So what Paul does here is he's modeling a very critical aspect of wise gospel living. What Paul is doing is helping people to understand what, what I want to call today theological triage, which is this. Not just understanding what issue is taught in the Bible, but understanding how to rank that issue in light of other issues in the Bible. Let me put it this way. Biblical wisdom is more than just knowing truth. Biblical wisdom is getting truth in the right order of importance. 
That is a very, very important concept for you to get in your minds and hearts. It's not just enough to know a biblical truth, but one must also know how to get it in the right order of importance. Let me give you a a diagram of this, and this has been very helpful to me. In fact, uh, my son Jeremiah saw this, and he's like, oh, I've seen that on napkins before. (laughs) And he has, because I've sketched this out many times at a restaurant, of here's, here's how to think about this, all right? So what you've got is absolutes in the center, convictions in the next ring, and then preferences on the outside. And the critical reality is to see biblical truth through this lens. What's an absolute, what's a conviction, and what's a preference? So it's not just what does the Bible say, but also where does it fall in terms of its order of priority? An absolute would be something that defines the essence of the Christian life. In other words, It's something that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. If you deny it, you're not a Christian anymore. Example would be the deity of Christ. If if you don't believe that Jesus is God, then you can't be a Christian. Convictions, on the other hand, are strongly held scriptural beliefs and they have a significant impact on the health and effectiveness of a church, but they don't necessarily make the difference as to whether or not someone is a Christian. So a church doctrinal statement, for instance, will have within it absolutes, but it'll also have some strongly held convictions. Case in point would be, in our case here, believer's baptism. There are plenty of people within the broad range of evangelicalism who would practice infant baptism, and that's how they see the scriptures teach, uh, that's how they see the issues in the scripture. We, on the other hand, see believer's baptism, and therefore those believers are certainly true followers of Jesus, but from a church standpoint, this is how we understand the Bible to teach on a particular issue. And so there are some things that are convictions, and some that are more closely uh, aligned to absolutes, although not full absolutes, and others that are further out and more close, perhaps, to preferences. Preferences are less clear issues, that are often the application of particular passages. And some preferences are more rooted in scripture, they're closer to convictions, maybe they're right on that line. Other preferences are just maybe the way that you'd like things to be or what what your particular preference is. And, And the reason why that model is important is because liberalism is taking an absolute and treating it like a preference. Whereas legalism is taking a preference and treating it like an absolute. See the difference? Liberalism would say, ah, the deity of Christ, that's just a preference, that doesn't really matter, that's, that's liberalism. Legalism is taking an issue that should be a preference, let's say, like what kind of education choice you have for your kids, and you say in order to be a Christian, your kids have to go to a public school, right? I mean, so where you land on those particular issues and where you place them in terms of that category is nearly as important as the issue itself. As well, for some of you, you'll know that this work of theological triage is hard and emotional work. It's, it's jarring when you realize that something really is a preference and you used to think it was an absolute. Some of you may have been raised in homes like that or churches like that, where it felt like every preference was actually a, an, an absolute. And so you, you maybe are in what I've called the church recovery program, and you kind of have come out of that and trying to figure out, is this okay? And like I raised my hand, like, you know, I raised it like this this week, is that okay? And I don't wanna go like this, because that'll really trip me out, you know? And so you're, you're sort of in this process of trying to figure this out, and there's something going on in your heart. And I'm not making fun of that at all. I'm saying that's a hard, that's a really big challenge. And some of you come from unsaved families, and you're like, man, I, I can't believe that Christians can actually participate in this, because 
Like that's all associated with stuff that I was like saved from. And so you got people who are going both directions in the same body of Christ. For that matter, sometimes this happens within your own families. There may be a certain season of life where you thought, you know what, we're not gonna do a certain thing, and then you changed your mind 10 years later. In fact, if you're an older child, if you're, if you're a child and you're like the firstborn, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> because you look at your parents and you're, you look at your younger brothers and sisters, you see what your mom and dad are letting them do, and you're like, what? You can't believe it, right? So you're, you think your parents have like gone, they're like so big hypocrites. Like they said this and now it's this and everything else. All I can say, look, your parents grew up. That's all I can say. <laughs> Theological triage is hard work. You're not gonna walk out of here today with clear answers of what should you do, what you shouldn't do. What I hope you walk out of here with is how do I think about this to try and live with people around me? Now there are two issues that surface in the text. Look at verse three. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. So in this case, we have the stronger brother who can eat whatever he wants, doesn't have any conscience issue with it. His particular sin struggle, his temptation, would be to despise the one who abstains. To look at him and go, he's so old school, so old fashioned, what's the problem? He's looking down his nose at him, because he thinks he's too restrictive, so he disdains him. And on the other hand, he says, let not the one who abstains, so there's the weaker brother, pass judgment on the one who eats. So the other issue is that somebody who thinks is more restrictive, they can be judgmental towards the person who has more freedom. So you can see how this is set up. The, the weaker brother can be viewed as morally inferior, uninformed, kind of stuck in old ways, whereas the stronger brother can be viewed by the weaker brother as being less spiritual or compromised or somehow ungodly. What's more, the weaker brother could also then use his restrictions on his lifestyle as some sort of self-proclaimed marker that he's more spiritual than others. So you can see the devil can have a heyday in the midst of this. A friend of mine calls this the pride divide because both groups are equally proud. You can see how quick and devastating this pride divide could be. Oh, how often the enemy has used this in these secondary issues and in these opinion matters to divide the church, to destroy unity, to cause friends to separate, to break the bond of love between those who have a common commitment to the gospel. And they don't even get along anymore, and they're arguing about something that, frankly, Paul says, look, it's food. Stop arguing about it and just love one another. A Lutheran theologian Summarize the heart of Romans 14 and 15 with this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Now what Paul does is he gives us five reasons why we should live this way. Why should we welcome one another? It's not that Paul just says, which he does, he doesn't just say, hey look, it's just food, it's your brother, get along. What he does is he gives five reasons, and these are theologically oriented reasons, and I think he does this in order to build a framework with depth so that when you see someone doing something or not doing something and something trips inside your mind and you begin to feel a little disdainful or a little judgmental, Paul's gonna give us five things quickly that'll help us to build a framework to love that brother or to love that sister 
despite your differences. The first one is found in verse four. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So here's the first one, it's this. Jesus is Lord, not you. So when you feel this thing get tripped, like, they do what? They, really? And then you feel this thing, it goes not just from interesting to, mm-hmm, that's what I thought. Can you believe it? Hope that works out all right. And pretty soon, what's happening is you're starting to act like you're somebody who you're not. Paul says is you're not Lord, Jesus is. Positively means this, that the Lordship of Christ releases us from the need to feel like we gotta determine what other people should do or shouldn't do. So guess what? I release you. You don't ever have to be the personalized version of the Holy Spirit for anybody. You are released from that. Aren't you grateful? You don't have to worry what other people do. You don't have to bring conviction in their life. You don't have to hold them accountable like Jesus does. And the reason is, I'm not Jesus. And so when you feel that thing get tripped, remember, you're not Jesus. As well, if you live in the fear of man and you start to wonder, well, I wonder what they think of us. You think they approve of this? And what about they think? And pretty soon it feels like what Spurgeon called a carnival of mirrors. Live in the fear of man, sometimes you're skinny with a big head, and sometimes you got a small head with big feet, and sometimes you look at another mirror, and no matter who you're talking to, you look at yourself differently, and you can begin not only to lose your own sense of gospel identity, listen, you'll also hate those people. Because when you live your life in light of what other people think of you, you end up hating them. And what this is a reminder is that I served King Jesus, I don't serve other people. And as well, the text also says that he will make them able to stand, which is a very wonderful thing for him to say. Verse four says, he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, Jesus is the one who's empowering their righteousness. So parents, you see your kids, grown kids making choices that you're just like, I don't know, just remember, it was the power of the Holy Spirit, if they're a believer, that birthed them, and it's the power of the Holy Spirit that will also guide them. So you can rest, you can sleep. It's not on you, because you're not Jesus. Number five, or number two, verse five, excuse me. Paul says we're supposed to be fully convinced, and that's a personal issue. Verse five, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So there's the difference. One guy thinks, you know, this day's better than everything else. Another guy looks at it and he's like, every day's the same. Each one, he says, should be fully convinced in his own mind. For some of you, you've run into this theological triage category thing. It's been a little alarming when you find out that two people who you really respect see a gray area issue very differently. I remember that when that happened to me, I was just like, what? Like that guy and that guy don't agree? Like they say, now what do I do? Oh, now I gotta think, right? So I don't wanna, I don't wanna think. Just tell me what I'm supposed to, now I gotta think. And this text says that every person needs to be fully convinced in their own mind that there are things within the Bible that relate to a matter of conscience. So is this person right or is this person right? Well, the answer is it depends. It depends on 
what's going on inside of their heart, that there are some issues that are a matter of conscience, that the Bible has all sorts of things that are given to us as an external code of conduct. And so you need not wonder if certain things are right and wrong if they're clearly out, spelled out in the Bible. Like, don't come up to me afterwards today and like, so I'm not sure, like, I don't know if, I don't know if adultery is really wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of convinced. You don't need to be convinced. It's just straight up wrong. I mean, that's what the Bible says. We're talking about gray area issues where the Bible isn't clear. So a conscience issue, then, is something that needs to be worked out inside of someone's own soul. And there are times when right or wrong depends upon what you believe and believe in that moment. And Paul says every person needs to be fully convinced in his own mind. So that gets messy. And if you're raising kids, they love to raise this one. Well, so-and-so lets their kids do this. I mean, you're the only parents I know, like in, in all of North America, for that matter, <laughs> this, probably the world who thinks this way, right? You'd be fully convinced in your own mind. Third, text also tells us, remember, both parties honor God. Verse six, the one who observes the day observes in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. In other words, both people doing exactly the opposite thing honor God. So it isn't necessarily a right and wrong issue. Both honor the Lord. What's interesting is the way that Paul gets there is they both honor the Lord because both of them can give thanks for it. That's very important. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians will use the same concept. He'll say this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So if you're a college student, single adult, teenager, trying to figure out how to do this, this applies to people older than that as well. But just listen to me for a moment. If you're put into a situation and you're like, I don't know if I should do this or not, here's a really quick test that you could use. Can you stop and bless God for what you're about to do? Can you say, God, I thank you for whatever's next, and if you can, and you're like, absolutely, then you're probably okay. If you're like, I don't know, then you probably shouldn't. And if you're like, no, then you shouldn't. So that's just pretty easy, right? So can I thank God for this? Paul says both parties can honor God, therefore both are able to give thanks, so it's allowed. Fourth, the other thing is, is that he says we all belong to and we live for Jesus. This is similar to the first point about Jesus being Lord, and yet it's even more practical. Look at verse seven. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. In other words, this issue that we're living in, in the, the, the thing that we're dealing with right now in the world is not just a thing in and of itself. It's that the lordship of Christ is ruling over all of this, and when we live, we live not just for ourselves but also for Christ. And then he says, verse nine, for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. In other words, the resurrection of Christ matters not just for the future, for those who die. The resurrection of Christ matters now for how you live, that you live in freedom, that you're not under judgment, you're not under wrath, you're under grace. And therefore, there's freedom to be the person who God has made you to be and to live in the freedom that he's given you in the New Testament in terms of God's grace. And for us, therefore, then to live in the beauty of that. So Christianity is not just about our future. It's also about how we live now, that we belong and we live for Jesus right now. That's Paul's point. And finally, verses 10 to 13, it's this. 
Paul says, look, at the end of the day, God is the final judge. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Who's he talking to there? Pass judgment. He's talking to the weaker brother. Why do you pass judgment, weaker brother, on the stronger brother? And then he says, or you, he turns, stronger brother, why do you despise your brother? So he's talking to both groups, different sin issues, and then he says to both of them, for we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, he quotes Isaiah 45, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account to himself, account of himself rather, to God. So what Paul says to the weak brother, don't judge the strong one, and says to the strong brother, don't disdain the weak brother. The reality is is that we can treat one another with grace and love as brothers and sisters in Christ, even in the midst of emotionally charged and strong opinions that are different because the gospel is the thing that unites us, and at the end of the day, they're gonna have to give an account for God. So the assessment of the situation is not, at the end of the day, up to you. So if you struggle with disdaining people or if you struggle with judging people, the real issue is this. You are trying to take a position that only belongs to God. So stop that. Instead, embrace the gospel. Know that the body of Christ is comprised of people who experience the grace of God and as a result, see other people and see the differences between each other through this beautiful lens of God's grace, that he has loved you and cared for you. He's welcomed you, so welcome other people even though they have different preferences than you do. If all your friends think like you, all your friends walk like you, they're all the same exact convictions, the same preferences, you don't have Friends, you have a cult. (laughs) And you need some people outside your cult to help show you how the gospel really works. Now finally, let me just give you some closing pastoral thoughts on this. First, I love this church. I love the diversity of this body. I love the growing breadth of diversity, and I just want to commend you for how you love one another, and I want to encourage you to keep doing that. Do more of that. Our church is people from all kinds of backgrounds, church experiences, history. We all have different baggage that we bring to the table, and I love the way, and I see it happening all the time, that you're living out extravagant grace, you're living out unity in the midst of diversity, two of our core values, and I just wanna encourage you, keep welcoming one another, and when you run into a difference between each other, smile and go, I love you, I love the gospel, and let's not let this cause unnecessary friction between us. Let's not do that, let's let's win that unity battle. Secondly, I wanna give you a caution. Be careful to really understand what Paul is talking about in Romans 14 and 15. Too often, in my background, and in my experience as a pastor, I've seen weaker brother used as code for somebody who's just more conservative than you are. Be careful. And that's really nice, because now you get a biblical term, and you feel like you're really spiritual. Oh, they're just a weaker brother. Be careful about how you use stumbling block on the other side of the equation. Well, I wouldn't want to put a stumbling block in front of them. Well, let's talk about, so what exactly do we mean by stumbling block? Because you could use that to just not do anything. Be careful about how we use these terms 
and that we not let them hide the real issue, which is pride and disdaining and judging one another. And finally, the way that Paul handles this in Romans 14 and the way that he handles it in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 is to keep the gospel and brotherly love central while working really hard to triage the other issues. And I'm telling you, to triage these issues takes wisdom, it takes time, it's hard work, and I wanna encourage you to do more of that, to think through, now where does this fit? When you parent your children, parents, you need to think through how to help them understand this idea of triage. I remember the first time I realized, whoo, I got some work to do on this triage. My kids were really young, the twins, I think they were maybe three or four, and I may have used this illustration before, I don't know, it's the best one that I've got on this issue. We had decided when they were young that there was a particular show on PBS called Dragon Tales. I got, no, I got nothing fundamentally against Dragon Tales, but at that particular time in their life, I just didn't want them watching it. All sorts of other things they could watch. I didn't want them watching that. There was a magic thing I wasn't really comfortable with, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, guys, we're not gonna watch Dragon Tales. It's a show our family, we used to wanna watch. So that was fine, until about a year later, we're traveling the car back from Sunday school, and one of my kids says to me, Dad, you're not gonna believe what I learned today. And I thought, great, what did you learn in Sunday school? Do you know the, and I'll just use the name Johnson. Do you know the Johnsons? Yeah, they're good people. Do you know their kids watch Dragon Tales? <laughs> he's in the back seat, I'm looking at him, he's like, oh, Dragon Tales, Dad. That's when I realized, oh, I forgot to teach them about theological triage, because what I ended up doing is I communicated a standard and I created a legalist in a car seat. <laughs> so then I had to explain to them, no, 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 you can watch Dragon Tales and still be a Christian. Really? <laughs> so you can, you can. You can't. And they did not have that category built in their minds and their hearts. So I taught them one truth and I missed another. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we have to help people understand both. Because the welcoming of the gospel is on the line. We don't just want to be right and then be wrong. We don't want pride divide to take over. So let us welcome one another since Christ has welcomed us. Let's be convictional about the truth, but equally as convictional about the beauty of God's grace. If he welcomed us, we ought to welcome one another. Father, help us to be a people who love each other, who know how to place our differences in the right order of importance. Think of small groups who no doubt are dealing with this tension Think of families who have challenging waters with other families as they try and figure out how do our kids play together when we have differing perspectives on things. Single adults trying to figure out how to be friends when you've got a, a concern and something grieves your conscience. Well, this, this is complicated, teenagers who just don't understand why their parents seem so different than other people. And I pray that you'd help us to walk through this, these next couple weeks with a real desire to learn and grow about how to be a community full of grace and fully unified in the midst of our diversity. Thank you that the gospel is big enough that we can with one voice glorify you. 
despite our differences. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.